Welcome back to the Cardinals Off Day podcast. Uh, depending on the result of the game that's happening as Ben and I record this, the Cardinals are either one game above or one game below 500. But uh, regardless, they're about a 500 team on pace to win uh, about 81 games. Um, before we get to what we learned, Ben, uh, on our last episode, you gave me a quiz, and I actually have a surprise quiz for you. Oh, well, let's let's go. This is a one-question quiz, and uh, it's what do these Cardinals pitchers in 2021, and this is referring just to their 2021 numbers, have in common? Seth Elledge, Jordan Hicks, Junior Fernandez, TJ McFarland, Luis Garcia, Cody Whitley, Ryan Helsley, Justin Miller, Jake Woodford, Johan Oviedo, Daniel Ponce de Leon, Carlos Martinez, and Tyler Webb. What do each of those pitchers have in common? Uh, I'm going to say a walk rate over 10%. <laughs> well, I don't, you know, I don't have it up. Actually, not, not... I, I yeah. take that back because Martinez didn't walk. Uh, that many people this year right, so I, right. I i got swept away by the, the <laughs> beginning of that list uh i i don't know what do they have they in common? all at, they all have a lower wins above replacement as pitchers this season than matt carpenter uh matt carpenter has uh, <laughs> higher wins above replacement as a pitcher this year matt carpenter has 1.1 innings pitched this year and he has a zero uh wins above replacement as a pitcher all of those pitchers I just named, which if you weren't paying attention, were almost all of the Cardinals pitchers. <laughs> they they have all been worse than that this year. So uh, anyway, I thought that was um, I was gonna I was about to call it a fun fact, but it's kind of the opposite of fun. <laughs> so, but uh, but it is a fact. That, that's a great way of describing how the season has gone. Number one, all of those pitchers have pitched. Yes. And uh, number two, Matt Carpenter has pitched. Number three, Matt Carpenter has been better than all of them at pitching. Absolutely. Absolutely. So anyway, uh, setting setting aside uh, the, the, the quiz item for today, uh, Ben, what, uh, what have you learned? Uh, well, I learned that the, the front office's assessment of this team is is about on par with the fan bases. Uh, the moves that they made um, were not in any way, shape, or form an investment or moves to show the team that the front office believes in their ability to contend for the postseason, let alone make a run in the postseason. Uh, these were moves, and it's been covered in the media, but these are veteran guys who will not, who in all likelihood will not be on the Cardinals next year, who they can lean on to cover innings uh, two or so, two, maybe three times a week, I guess, from here on out, so that they can uh, limit some of the innings pitched exposure for some of their younger pitchers who will be here for the foreseeable future. Um, and they might be worried about their workloads after the shortened 2020 season. And you look at uh, LeBlanc, Lester, Hap, and I'm, I'm just lumping LeBlanc in because they're all kind of of the same flavor, right? They might actually be the same person. I, yeah. I mean, we can't rule that out. Um, and so uh, when, you, when you lump those pitchers together, uh, you see a team that is just trying to get through the end of the season. And when you look at the team, I think what I noticed and, and what made me uh, look it up, and I just haven't 
really been going to the ESPN standings, which I think ESPN has the best web page for Major League Baseball standings because they just have all this information. But they also have the runs differential in an easy to uh, process location. And I knew that the Cardinals had a below a, a negative run differential. But when the Blue Jays made the trade for Barrios and you know, the Cardinals were in on Barrios. Uh, we know this. We know that they checked in earlier and were su- in the season in June and were surprised at the asking price. And I think it, the asking price in June, judging by the haul the Blue Jays gave up to get him, was probably lower than what it wound up being the selling price uh, at the end of the ju- July. But after that trade, I went and I looked you know, because I was like, the Blue Jays are about as far out of first place as the Cardinals are. And then I went and looked it up, you know, on the day the trade was made, and they were both nine and a half games out of first. The Blue Jays were actually in fourth place in the AL East, and the Cardinals were in third in the NL Central. But the Cardinals had a negative run differential approaching negative 40, and the Blue Jays had a positive run differential approaching 100. <laughs> or no. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, I was like, that is why the Blue Jays are investing in their team for this year and next year. They have an excellent young core. They're playing good baseball. By run differential, they've played the second-best baseball in the division, even if the record doesn't reflect that. And uh, they are investing in their team now and next year because they are in a much better place than the Cardinals uh, in terms of the underlying uh, performance measures. And uh, really, when I read that, I was kind of like, oh, Maybe the team shouldn't be doing anything to help itself in 2021. Maybe they should be selling. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm looking at that page right now, and here's a complete list of teams uh, in the National League with a lower run differential than the Cardinals. The Arizona Diamondbacks, the Pittsburgh Pirates, the Colorado Rockies. End of list. So that's that's not good. That is not good. Um, and I, you know, I learned something very similar, Ben, and I think it makes sense. We were all watching the trade deadline and the, I think we, we had a sense of what the Cardinals would do or were likely to do a couple uh, episodes ago. You and I kind of proposed that we thought their trades might be, we were in the same kind of ballpark in terms of what we were thinking, but you know, there, as always, they were a little bit cagey. There's always the possibility that, you know, they could have said, no, we are gonna, um, you know, invest in some level of an upgrade or some player who um, might help us this year. I think particularly in the final week, the talk around um, uh, Berrios uh, and, and also around, uh, uh, Oh gosh, who's the, the nationals uh, shortstop who went to the Dodgers. Why am I Trey, Turner. Trey Turner, Trey Turner. Those two names came up with both with, and the fact that they are both signed for next year as well. Started to seem like, well, maybe this is kind of a, an early upgrade really for next year, but that could also help this year. Um, the fact that the Cardinals didn't make you know any moves like that suggested to me, just like you said, they they certainly understand that 2021 is you know a lost cause. It's not worth putting um, investing uh, resources into. But to me, it also suggested that they may not be real likely to move top prospects for 2022 either, because I think they were looking at both of those guys as you know, more as 2022 pieces. And I think as we'll touch on a little bit later, when we talk about some of the moves they didn't make, it would have taken, um, you know, uh, someone from their kind of top three prospects to to match what was given up in either of those deals. 
Um, now, that's not to say that they absolutely wouldn't do that in the offseason. There'll be different players available, but I think it gives us a little bit of an idea of what their mindset is now. And I feel like since they were really looking at 2022 at this trade deadline anyway, that's exactly what they'll be looking at in the offseason as well. So it gives us maybe a little bit of an insight into their thinking there. So um, so our first topic today, we kind of wanted to just talk about the moves that they did make. So the Cardinals made two trades on the trade deadline. They traded John Gant, Evan Sisk, and a bag of balls to the Twins for J.A. Happ. They also traded Lane Thomas uh, in a case of Budweiser for John Lester. Ben, what did you uh, would you make of those? Uh, my initial takeaway uh, was that the ownership payroll cap must be pretty hard um, because the Cardinals sent. Uh, you know, guaranteed major league salary in John Gant to the twins and the twins sent back money to help cover the, the salary of Hap. Uh, and then uh, the Lester one, you know, Lester's contract with the nationals is not very big at all. Yeah. And so both of those moves, the thing that jumps out to me is that uh, it seems pretty clear that DeWallet, uh, was all but closed for the front office when it came to adding players. Um, and and that was something that jumped out to me about those trades. Uh, the other thing is that uh, they seem to be courting pitchers who throw strikes and pitch to contact. Uh, and they play their home games in Bush. We've covered this before on the podcast. Bush is good. Pitcher's Park, they're using the humidor this year. So it, it might even be a little bit better of a pitcher's park. And uh, the Cardinals have a very good defense, uh, especially an outfield defense. And so for Hap and Lester, I think that they are banking on, one, their peripherals being better than what their ERA shows. And I think the stats back that up. And then number two that they might be able to outperform those peripherals playing in front of the St. Louis Cardinals uh, defense or pitching in front of the St. Louis Cardinals defense. And uh, that seems like a pretty reasonable uh, low-cost gamble. Um, And I feel pretty confident that both of them will be better down the stretch than Woodford, who's terrible, Oviedo, who's not yet ready for Major League Baseball, or Gant, who might be the worst pitcher in Major League Baseball this year. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with your assessment given all the parameters of where they were at. I think the, I think these were good moves. I think these were the kind of moves that they needed to make. I think they accomplished what they set out to make. We talked last week about Mo's kind of last interview comments and, and he said, you know, when asked, what are you looking for? He said, we're looking for innings. And that's the, you know, this, we, we talk, we, we joke about Mo speak, but that was, that was pretty straightforward. That's what he was looking for. And that's what they got here. Um, so the, so, so I, I, you know, I mean, I feel like, like these were the, the right kind of moves for them to make given the situation. The As I've looked online over the past couple of days, and obviously there's the fans who are just like, oh, this team doesn't want to win and da-da-da-da-da and that kind of stuff, which um, I'm just going to set that aside. The two kind of more specific criticisms I've seen of this are 
One, I've seen folks say, well, did they really add innings because they're just adding a couple guys who, you know, aren't real likely to, you know, get past the fifth inning anyway. That's that's what we already had. So that's one argument. And then the other one I've seen is the idea that, well, you know, John Gant had a better, you know, has a better ERA than uh, Jay Happ. So uh, why would you why would you trade? And he's younger and, you know, he's he's uh, got one year of arbitration left. So why would you do that? Um, so, uh, jumping on the, the innings question first, cause I disagree with both of those positions. I'll just say that, uh, up front. Um, you know, the innings thing, I understand the point these, you know, th- when you say you're looking to add innings, yeah, ideally you would, you would add a starter who's going to go deep into games and that's really going to take pressure off of your, off of your bullpen. But a, those guys were not available or were incredibly expensive. And B, you still are adding innings by bringing these guys in because Oviedo is going to go down to the minors. Woodford's going to go to the minors or to the bullpen, et cetera. You still have those guys. So those guys can still shuffle back in. This can be a, you know, this can be a, a seven-man rotation or whatever they need it to be. So you still have you have more of those guys. So, so absolutely those innings help you, even if on a per game basis, they're not getting there. Um, you know, Gant, it's important to remember, you know, Gant was moved to the bullpen. Um, Gant was going to stay in the bullpen. Gant was not a starting pitcher. Um, I took a look just on a uh, zips rest of season projections and, you know, they pre- project 36 innings for John Gant. 47 for Jay Happ and 45 for John Lester. So obviously they've, you know, and again, I'm just using the zips projections because that's kind of a empirical number that someone has thrown out there. Um, you know, Happ and Lester are going to give you more innings than you would have gotten out of, out of Gantt certainly and much higher quality. And then, yeah, as you said, the, the Gantt better ERA thing. I mean, come on, if you're looking at ERA, uh, go home. That's ridiculous. Um, what was it, Mike Shannon? What was it? Uh, what was it, Mike Shannon said about John Gant during today's broadcast? Today, and I wrote this down because he was talking about these trades, and and you know he and Rooney were were both pretty positive on them. And Mike Shannon said the job's to throw strikes, and they got rid of a guy who couldn't throw strikes. <laughs> you know, I think that's about all you need to say about the the Gant for Hap trade. And I, I want to say that we have had discussions about Gant. Uh, quite a lot here on the podcast because I very much agree with Mike Shannon. But we also had said that there's a possibility, you know, he'll get a little uptick in velocity. He'll be a little bit better out of the bullpen than he's been starting. Uh, As a starter this year, though, he had a 17.1K percentage and a 16.4 walk percentage. And you'll recall I was really hopeful that he might get a chance to catch Todd Van Poppel's 1994 record for you know, that if Gantt were to stay in the rotation, he would have been worse than Van Poppel. Like, that's how far back you have to go to find a starting pitcher who issues as many walks as John Gantt did this year. Uh, but then he moved, you know, and it's a, it's a minuscule sample size, but then he moved to relief. He's striking out 11.5% of opposing batters in relief, and he's walking 15.4% of opposing, opposing batters in relief. So he's, I mean, he looks about as cooked as you'll see from a starter. And I saw the Ben. And he just, he he looks despondent. I mean, he just looks like just the, the the body language between he and Yachty, the couple times I've seen him out of the, out of the bullpen. I mean, you know, Yachty's basically dropping his shoulders. Just like, like, come on, man. I mean, cause the ball's nowhere near the target. It's, you know, these, when John Gant throws a ball, it's not, 
you know, he didn't miss the corner. He's a foot off the plate and, and maybe a foot off the plate on the opposite side of where Yachty was, was set up. It's, you know, it's terrible to the eye test. And that's one of the things that blows my mind too, about these folks who are kind of John Gant apologists is it's like, I, I know that you and I talk about, you know, walk percentage, which is not really a very sophisticated statistic, but it's maybe slightly above your kind of like baseball card thing. But it's just like, how are, how are you watching the game and not, you know, like, like what, what is it that you're seeing that's reading as an effective pitcher from this guy? I, I honestly don't understand what it could be. It's uh, the viewing experience is miserable. Like watching him perform is one of the least enjoyable things uh you know, maybe since Mike Maroth, uh, who the uh, the Lester and Hap acquisitions kind of resemble, but I mean, it's bad. Um, but I was yeah. reading that Ben Fredrickson uh, post on STL Today, and you know, he like he and I had a tweet to this uh, extent because he remind me he was, wasn't he also kind of on the like why would they get rid of John? Well, Gant? he he described. Lane Thomas and John Gant as blocked players with murky futures. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, as I read this, John Gant has the least murky future with the St. Louis Cardinals uh, of any player other than like Paul Goldschmidt. Paul Goldschmidt will start first base next year, you know, and, and be paid $30 million to do it. John Gant was going to be non-tendered after this season. And, set free to go try to find work somewhere else that was going to happen unless they traded him now. And, uh, Lane Thomas, uh, is, is nearing the end of his uh, time with the organization as well. Uh, Lars Newtbar leapfrogged him and they have, uh, other players climbing the ladder, uh, who deserve an opportunity to be a bench outfielder over him. And so to the extent his future was murky, it was really just a question of how long he would be able to cling to the fifth outfielder spot, um, in the organization. So they gave up guys who, uh, were given an opportunity and failed. And that's what happens in professional sports. And so they shipped them out to fill an immediate need because neither one of them was going to fill a future need for this organization. And so I really disagreed and did with and did not understand that assessment uh, at all because uh, John Gant failed. He has failed. And he may not get anything more than like a spring training invite next year uh, from someone like the Marlins or something, you know, I mean, it's, it's not looking good for his career. No, the, and the reporting I've seen from a couple of twins uh, uh, writers is, you know, he's, he's going into the bullpen in Minnesota and uh, Minnesota apparently has a pretty much a tradition of not tendering contracts to guys entering their last year of arbitration when they're basically going to be, um, you know, kind of market value uh, contracts anyway. So it, it's, it, it seems very unlikely that he's going to be re-signed with them. So yeah, he looks like, a, uh, you know, he's going to have to try to catch on with somebody next year. And I mean, it, it, it looks like his career is pretty much over. Um, I just wanted to, uh, point out as well. And you mentioned as well, uh, you know, happen left. So Gantt, we've talked about the Gantt's problem is that 16.2% walk rate. And actually I'm on his uh, baseball reference page right now. And at the moment he actually has a 16.2% walk rate and a 16.2% strikeout rate. Oh, so, perfect. Um, but, uh, uh, 
but only a 1.7% home run rate, which, you know, that is something that he, you know, things were too bad there. Hap and Lester, what's really gone bad for them, Hap has a 4.7% home run rate. Lester has a 4.1% rate. You know, those are both, those are both really bad too. But if there's anything that you would expect would come down for pitchers coming into Bush Stadium, one of one of whom on top of that coming out of an, out of the American League, um, you know, it's Bush uh, continues to play more and more as a pitcher's park. You've got that great outfield there. So I just think, you know, any rational person has to expect those home run rates to go down. And just from that alone, you see some regression in them, you know, to where they are now, which is basically like number seven starters, <laughs> you know, they might regress back to being like number five starters. And, you know, that's, and that's going to be good enough. Um, and, and they both have, you know, much, much lower walk rates than certainly than Gant. And, and, you know, I mean, honestly, just about anybody in this Cardinals team this year. So, um, yeah, I, uh, uh you know, it's, it's not, it, it, they're not sexy moves. They're not really going to do a whole lot, but at the same time, you know, Hap and Lester feel like the kind of guys that, you know, th- these are also guys who have a track record of, of success in their past. And, you know, um, who knows, you know, could come in and, and pitch reasonably well. Wade LeBlanc has certainly pitched better in St. Louis than I think, you know, we could have expected. So. Uh, oh, absolutely. There's a, there's a, the real whiff of veteran proviness over, you know, coming off of both of them. And, uh, you know, VHS had the tweet that uh, Happ and Lester feel like uh, vintage uh, Dave Duncan reclamation projects. Uh, and I, th- they certainly do. But it also seems like um, the team knows it needs to reduce the walks and they know that they have the outfield defense to help support a pitcher like Lester and a pitcher like Hap. And so the the team, the organizational philosophy such that it exists, in my mind, seems to be toward finding great uh, or at least above average defenders to help uh, their pitchers suppress runs better than perhaps their peripherals suggest they should be suppressing runs. And, you know, this is kind of hoping to upgrade lefties who look toward the end of their career. Whereas, you know, like with a Kim, it's helping take someone who's maybe a, a middle to back end starter play up into the, into the upper half of a rotation in terms of run suppression. We're now getting guys that are, you know, maybe barely hanging on as fifth starters in their careers. And the Cardinals are hoping that the defense and Yadier Molina calling games helps knock them up into a solid fifth starter, maybe a fourth starter, or maybe you get lightning in a bottle and you get league average production from here on out. But that's what this really uh, feels like them doubling down on their defense first philosophy, hoping that they can juice the performance from a couple of veteran lefties who pitched to contact. Yeah. So get your tickets now folks for St. Louis Cardinals baseball. They may have just added two number five starters. Um, (laughs) Anyway. um, So moving on, Ben, uh, so those are the moves that they made. Are there any, any, you know, any moves that they they missed out on, moves that maybe they could have made, things that they were uh, perhaps in the conversation of that you feel like they, they should have made, or just any thoughts on, uh, you know, the moves outside of the ones they actually did? 
I well, Mosaloc said that when he went into the office on the morning of the trade deadline on Friday morning, he thought they were going to make a move that they that wound up falling apart. I know. And who do we think that was? I did see someone. Else. I think Jeff Jones said that he also got him to say it was a pitcher. I think I saw that. And I am very curious about who that was. And I I look forward to the reporting on it. But I'm assuming I'm assuming that it was Mike Miner, because that's who I picked in our kind of propose a trade thing. And that would have given me some bragging rights. (laughs) Yes, it was Mike Miner. No, uh, I it's interesting. Um, it, It feels like, you know, with the weirdness from the Rockies and the Cardinals connection with the Rockies that maybe just if Mosellock is coming into the office thinking that he has a deal uh, and it falls through the last time that happened uh, was in the free agent market. And it it was not even um, just the Cardinals who thought that David Price thought he was going to be a Cardinal. And then the Red Sox came in, Dombrowski blew them out of the water. So there's really two possibilities, right? You have like a Rockies level dysfunction where they led the Cardinals on, wasted their time (laughs) and then pulled the rug out from underneath them because they're so incompetent and dysfunctional or they got outbid like in a Barrios type situation. Um, I, I, if I had to bet, I would bet it was Barrios. That feels right to me because the reporting when that deal came through too, the, the industry reaction seemed to be surprise at the haul that the twins got, which suggests to me that what the kind of, what people had heard was maybe what Barrios was going to bring back was lower than that. And, and I certainly can't see the Cardinal. So in that trade, by the way, uh, the twins got Austin Martin back from uh, Toronto and uh, he's a shortstop outfielder. He's uh, currently ranked number 16 on MLB pipeline. So he's a higher ranked prospect than any prospect in the Cardinals organization going by MLB uh pipeline there so um i mean that would certainly have blown away anything that the cardinals would have well and mosaic in his press answers said we were not going to part with any of our top five prospects yes and i think reading that it 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 is understandable but then you also look at um if you're going to give up a top five prospects, the the Cardinals value a degree of control. And Berrios yeah. makes sense that they would be up on the brink of something like that and then get out bid. Yeah. Um, but yeah. then you look at, you know, folks who are like, oh, they might get Trey Turner. And then you look at the Dodgers getting just going crazy. And it's like, we're getting Scherzer and Turner and we're giving the right. Nationals this robust prospect package. And that's the type of move you make when you have an excellent team that is battling two other excellent teams for the division crown and avoiding that wild card plan. Uh, you know, that puts you in a position to pay that higher price. Whereas if you're nine and a half games out, have a less than 5% chance of making the postseason, you don't spend like that for those two types of players. Um, yeah. Well, and that I was going to mention that Scherzer Turner trade either because the Barrios trade and the, the especially the Turner part of that trade I feel like are the two that you know I think Cardinal fans were really longing for them to if they were going to go somewhat big to go for something like that yeah and so the the Dodgers got a Kybert Ruiz who's MLB Pipeline's forty first ranked prospect and a catcher and Josiah Gray who's the forty second ranked prospect and a pitcher so that lines up pretty 
pretty evenly with Matthew Liberatore and Ivan Herrera would have been the two Cardinals that you could swap in that would have been comparable there. And that just seems crazy for a deal. I mean, especially because for the Cardinals, the Scherzer part of it is is pretty irrelevant because this, you know, I think even if you add Max Scherzer and Trey Turner to this team, it's a pretty long shot that they're, yeah. you know, this would be a playoff team. So basically you would be trading that, you know, Libertor and Herrera's entire controlled careers for one year of Trey Turner, um, which so, you know, to me, that's enough to kind of suggest, you know, that. Yeah, I agree with the decision not to get in on a a trade at that level. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The the prices were very high with where the Cardinals are on the postseason odds spectrum for 2021. It made little sense uh, for them to make a move that was 2021 oriented, which is what I consider Scherzer to be. But looking for a move that's 2021 and 2022 oriented like a Trey Turner. But when you when the Dodgers came in and and stole Scherzer from the Padres, let's not forget that, that that the Padres were very close, which I think probably impacted the price a little bit. Um, And so when you look at that, I think it's understandable with the Cardinals freeing up quite a bit of money. Why would you give two of your top you know, five or six or 10 prospects for Turner when you have the free agent shortstop crop that's going to be available out there. You also have, you know, DeYoung playing very well, who's under contract. You know, you probably move DeYoung uh, to second base in this scenario, but it makes more sense to me to hold on to those prospects and go be a free agent player and perhaps overpay a little bit in that market than to overplay in the, in, in prospects given where the team is now. Um, because I yeah. think those prospects are going to have a greater impact on the organization, uh, than a Trey Turner, because I, I honestly, I think Trey Turner is going to go become a free agent and make $300 million once he's done. And you might be able yeah. to sign like a story or a, a Bellinger or something, um, that that fits the organizational philosophy and and fits a need uh, for you know a five six seven year deal um, and carries you through with a foundation and a core of Arenado, Goldschmidt, and whoever that free agent acquisition might be. Yeah. So I have one trade that I, I as I look at this season that I, I really wish the Cardinals would have made themselves or at least it's the example, again, of the kind of thing that I think they should have done. And and that's the Brewers-Willie Adamas trade. So I just want to recap this. So on May 21st, the Brewers traded uh, uh, J.P. Fireisen, uh, that's his name, and Drew Rasmussen to the Rays for Willie Adamas and Trevor Richards. So the, the Brewers traded two pretty good relief pitchers, for Willie Adamas and a pretty good relief pitcher. Okay, so that was the the structure of that trade. So um, now this would have been a challenge for the Cardinals um, just because the Cardinals have not had a, a, a real uh, <laughs> a ton of relief pitching this year. But just looking at kind of the relative values of those guys, I think for the Cardinals to have done that, you would have been talking about um, – either Gallegos or Reyes and Genesis Cabrera. Those the, like that would have been the package from the Cardinals that kind of lined up for that. And they would have gotten back Willie Adamas and a reliever 
kind of in that Genesis Cabrera kind of mold. So you'd, you'd be losing out on, on uh, Gallegos or Reyes, who, you know, for the Cardinals, one of their, you know, two best relief pitchers. But you would have picked up Willie Adamas, who um, after a real breakout year last year was just a little down at the beginning of this year, which I think is why the Rays traded him. But uh, Willie Adamas has been a 3.7 win player for the Brewers uh, and put up a 121 OPS plus so far this season. Um, the Brewers, in a weird way, were in a really similar place to the Cardinals. So they had cut uh, Orlando Arcia during the offseason. Um, Lu- uh, Luis Urias uh, was who they had kind of slotted in to be the the shortstop this season. And he just he wasn't he wasn't really producing. And so on May 21st, they pulled the trigger and made this deal. Now, a Cardinals team that I think was a little more nimble and a little more aggressive could have done the exact same thing and said, look, Tommy Edmond is not doing what we need him to do. We have a hole here. Now, granted, the Cardinals had that hole because they created it themselves when they <laughs> let Colton Wong go to, as it happens, the Brewers, right? But, um, you know, that's the kind of deal. And this gets back to them we talked about last week, Ben, which is just a, kind of a lack of creativity out of this organization. And I, you know... When that move happened, and really ever since then, you'd hear Mo saying like, "Well, you know, the trade, de- you know, deals don't really come together until uh, you know the end of July." And it's like, well, that that is true, but you know, be creative, be aggressive, and and perhaps you can make something like this, like this happen. And it just seems like, uh, you know, the, the Cardinals don't make moves until they have just absolutely exhausted any. You know, you, I mean, the, John Gant stayed in this rotation until, uh, you know, there was just literally nothing left, etc. So I, I, I just I bring that up. I mean, I'm not saying that, like, the, you know, they had a crystal ball to know exactly how that trade was going to work or that they could have immediately inserted themselves and like, you know, stolen that away. But that's the kind of creative thinking. And that's the kind of thing that I think if this team could have improved somehow this year or could have turned things around a little bit, it would have been through doing something like that. And I guess the the thing that's just a little depressing to me when I watch this club these days is again, just, I don't see that creativity. I don't see that urgency. And it feels like that it feels like that's an unlikely move for the Cardinals to make. Um, and I think that's unfortunate. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the, at that point in time, uh, was when it looked like maybe Tommy Edmond had figured something out. Uh, his launch angle went up. He hit he hit the two home runs in one game against the White Sox. Uh, he had the good series in Arizona, and and did pretty well when they went to L.A. as well. And you know, if you're an organization that lets Colton Wong go for free and hands a starting job to Tommy Edmond after you played Tommy Edmond in the outfield over Randy Arozarena, it seems to me unlikely that you're going to go get Tommy Edmond's replacement and trade two major league relievers when your bullpen, uh, frankly, was a mess even then, except for those two guys. (laughs) And it's, it's one of those things where the Brewers were able to do that because they had pitching depth, which is what folks needed and the Cardinals needed Mm -hmm. pitching depth at that time uh, as well, because they were plumbing the depths of their pitching and finding uh, not a lot worth throwing out there. And so I think they would have been hard pressed to do that. And I don't think they would have done it because 
you know, we talked about their run differential and how their record is so much better than what their run differential says it should be. One of the primary reasons for that is that Mike Schilt has done a good job of managing games when they have the lead. I know that they've had a couple of recent uh, blowups that, yeah. that cost them games. Right. But overall, and I know some folks probably won't like me saying this, you know, typically you look at ma- a manager and say, what is the measure of a good manager? He wins more than he should based on talent. And I criticize Schilt, you criticize Schilt, but he has a formula that works in close games. And uh, even though he has not always gotten good starts, he has also, and not always had good relievers in the middle innings, he's been able to bridge the gap enough uh, between Alex Reyes and the starter that the team's record looks a lot better than it should. And, you know, a big reason for that is Gallegos uh, and Genesis Cabrera, uh, because they've handled a lot of high inning or high leverage innings, sometimes going more than one inning, uh, to allow Alex Reyes to start a clean ninth so that he has room to walk two or three guys uh, before somehow getting the save. Yeah, no, I, I mean, you're right. You're right. Um, but I guess what it comes down to for me is I always feel like the benchmark of an organization that's firing on all cylinders is when they're making moves ahead of the experts and ahead of the fan base. Like they can kind of see, you know, they they can see ahead. And, um, and I think that that's something that, you know, this organization used to do all the time, even when they would make a move like, say, the Colby Rasmus trade, where it was like, oh, geez, like they're, you know, this guy's a huge prospect they're giving up on. Um, you know, I mean, for really for a, probably a decade plus, they, they just about didn't lose any trades like that. And even even something where it felt like, oh, you know, um, gosh, I don't know if that makes sense. They had a little bit of foresight in it. And now it just feels to me lately, it, it just feels like they're really behind the curve. And and I agree at that making a move at that point. I don't think people were clamoring yet. I mean, Edmund was still producing enough that it kind of seemed like, oh yeah, maybe this guy is going to, you know, going to work or be fine here. Um, You know, but to to have had a little bit of foresight of some of the problems there, or as we talked about last week, just to be looking to add depth, which is something they could have done at any point and and didn't do, um, you know, would have been detrimental. So anyway, I just, um, I mean, this season, I and I, I mean, I'm a broken record here, but they this season was sunk when they didn't re-sign Colton Long and they didn't add maybe one starting pitcher to the mix. And I think those two moves would have really, um, I think if they made those two moves, I think this team is in the playoff race, you know, yeah. for, for the rest of this season. And maybe they even and 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 I think they likely do make a move here at the trade deadline. They do make a move like add a Berrios or something like that to yeah, push them ahead I even farther. And so, um, you know, so I think the biggest mistakes of this season happened bef- uh, before the season when they did those two things. I don't know that there's much they could have done in season to change course, but just as I was looking for anything that they could have done, it's something like that Willie Adamas move is I, the kind of thing that if they yeah. had been more proactive and, and done something like that, maybe there was still a way to, you know, salvage a, a more competitive season. And And it could have been, but also remember at that point in time, they were... Uh, right around a first place team. And they, so they were first place team and, and the yeah. Brewers were four games back. I just double checked that. So, so yeah, no, that's true. And I mean, obviously I'm, I'm hindsight 2020 it and everything, but um, 
And I and I also, you know, I want to say I, I think it's kind of become fashionable to bash the manager and the general manager and the president of baseball operations. But I 100% believe that there was a hard cap put on the payroll. I don't think that John Mosellock, given his track record, cuts Wong loose at just a $12 million price tag unless ownership is saying you have to get under a certain number. And I also yeah. don't think it's a coincidence that, that the salary that the Rockies threw in for Arenado made him virtually free this year. Um, and yeah. so I, I also think that this team, you know, before the 2020 season, they were in a similar position when it came to rotation depth and they went and they signed Kim and they said, you're going to be a starter or a reliever based on need. And remember he started yeah. the season as the closer before going into the rotation due to all of the horrible yeah. things that happened in 2020 and then emerged as a, as a set starter for 2021. So even as recently as before the 2020 season, this was a team that went out and tried to get, you know, that swing man for that pitching depth. And I just don't think they had the budget for it. And I know a lot of folks are saying, well, they we've been saying they needed depth from the spring, but you'll recall entering spring training, Michaelis was expected to start. They had five starters. And it's a lot easier to sell a free agent who wants to start because he will make more money after the contract if he's a starter on coming to a situation where he sees a viable path to starting. And it was really, I think, the lateness in spring training with the Michaelis injury and then also uh, the Kim back issues that really uh, sunk this team in terms of what they were going to do uh, in terms of building a roster confined with with payroll restrictions. And, and we've talked about this since the beginning of the podcast, that the team had starting pitching depth, but they didn't want to use it in April. They were hoping that they would have to dip into it in, you know, maybe like July. But then yeah. Liberator has not really had a best case scenario development, neither has Zach Thompson. And so now you have, instead of perhaps two lefties reinforcing the rotation from the minors, they're bringing in two veteran lefties who won't be here next year uh, to reinforce yeah, the and, rotation. And Ben, I think that's a really good point because, you know, it, it is easy to look back and say, well, they should have added pitching depth. But, you know, you look at even John Lester, even Jay Happ, who they just both added. Those are guys who signed one year contracts. Those are guys who would have been, you know, floating out there exactly the guys they could have signed. But those are two guys who, frankly, were probably only looking for places where they were going to be guaranteed a, a rotation spot. And you make a fair point. The Cardinals probably couldn't have with a fully straight face you know, made that, uh, promise, uh, at that point. So, um, so anyway, uh, well, keeping kind of pivoting and, and, but keeping those two guys in mind, we did want to bring you a, a bit of a box score of your, uh, today. Uh, we're not looking at one game. We're looking at five games and these are five games in, uh, 1997. Um, after the St. Louis Cardinals made a mid season trade to acquire Fernando Valenzuela. So, um, for those kids out there, or those of you who don't happen to remember, uh, Valenzuela uh, ended his career uh, in St. Louis in 1997. Um, 
They uh, picked him up on uh, June's. Uh, well, the, his first game was on June 17th. They picked him up just before that um, from the Padres. Um, Valenzuela, who obviously burst on the scene with a uh, rookie of the year. And uh, did, did he win the Cy Young that year, too? I don't remember, but he might not have won the Cy Young, but uh, he was also uh, he was rookie of the year. He was a World Series hero um, in L.A. and very, very good in the early part of his career with the Dodgers. That was back in um, uh, the the early the early 80s. Um, I think 81, right, was his big season. I should have his actual page up here. I'm kind of pulling these out. Uh, but um, anyway, you know, went on to be kind of more of a journeyman bounce around. And so at this point, of course, we're into 1997 at the end of his career here. So um, he he was so, the first okay. uh, rookie to ever win the Cy Young. Uh, okay, yeah. In, uh, in 81. And he edged out uh, some guy named Tom Seaver. You know, I, I don't know who, huh. who he, some jobber. <laughs> yeah, some yeah. jobber. Uh, and rookie of the year as well. Other fun fact, he won the Silver Slugger that year as well. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. I love a pitcher who can hit. So, um, and this is the last year I'll ever get to see it. But anyway, moving on. <laughs> um, ben, any, any other any other thoughts before we kind of take a look at these games? Um, you know, the, the Venezuela 97 edition is really a, a vintage-like jockety Larusa Duncan edition where they get some guy who looks washed up, who has that veteran proviness smell to him. And Larusa identifies him as a winner, you know, a, a winning player who can help them win. And then, you know, Sajakity goes and gets him to fill a need. And uh, typically it went pretty well when he would do something like that. Uh, but as we will see, it didn't quite go so well uh, with Fernando Venezuela in uh, 1997. Yeah. And, you know, he was coming in midseason again to kind of plug a rotation hole. So we we gravitated towards this because it's there's a, some pretty clear uh, parallels to this season. So uh, so Valenzuela's first game as a Cardinal, June 17th, he started against the Milwaukee Brewers. And uh, he was uh, not great, uh, but he was okay. He went five innings pitched. He gave up five hits, three earned runs, and three walks. Gave up one homer. Um, game score, which I always kind of like just for looking at like individual starts as a number. He uh, And uh, uh, 50 is uh, average. Um, he, uh, he was a 43 uh, for that particular game. So, you know, a little, little below, below average. Uh, ben, you want to take that next one? Should we trade off? Uh, yeah, then he started against the Chicago Cubs, and the team uh, lost the game three to nothing. He went six innings, uh, struck out two, walked none, uh, gave up a homer. Um, was not a a terrible start. Uh, game score fifty six, so slightly above average. Um, you know, you would. Uh, look at game score. This would be his best start. But even just looking at the stat line, I wouldn't really have any argument that uh, this start against the Cubs was his best uh, with the Cardinals. Yeah, and frankly, this is the kind of start that I think is probably what the Cardinals are hoping that they can get out of John Lester and Jay Happ. Six innings pitched, th- uh, three runs, only one earned for whatever that's worth. No walks. Uh, you know, like I think if if 
John Lester and Jay Happ roll, give them that every you know five days, Cardinals are going to be perfectly happy with that. Uh, that was also the high point of his time with the Cardinals. His his next start, uh, he only went four innings, uh, gave up uh, four earned runs and six total runs. Um, so six runs in four innings uh, and uh, two walks in this particular game. Uh, with that low innings pitched and all those runs, his game score dropped all the way down to 31. Um, although the Cardinals did win that game 12 to 6 against the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, then he started on July 3rd against the Pirates. He lasted only five innings. He gave up uh, three runs on four hits, uh, three walks, and one strikeout. Uh, a pretty ugly line. That was sort of like, you know, kind of him channeling maybe his uh, inner John Gant. Um, and uh, just uh, not great. Um and managed to give the team five innings, which I feel like in this era, you see a lot of not great lines where the pitcher threw five innings, you know, like uh, because the manager left him in for like the minimum of what was considered the starter's job philosophically throughout baseball at that time. And then it was like, he does not have it today. Get him out of there. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you said he started to channel his inner John Gant, but he really got in touch with his inner John Gant and his final start of his entire career on July 14th. Um, this would actually be so he left the rotation. Um, you notice this is 11 days after his last start when he would make his final start for the Cardinals. It was uh, at Cincinnati. Uh, he would go only two and two thirds innings pitched, um, give up three runs on two hits and six walks um, and uh, one one strikeout there for a game score of 37. I looked at the individual game as well. So it was in the, the bottom of the third inning that things really fell apart for him. And uh, he started off with a hit by a pitch, then a fielder's, uh, fielder's choice. Uh, so they got one out there, uh, followed by a walk and then a walk and then a walk. Um, and then a ground out, and then his last at bat of his career, he gave up a single to Hal Morris with the bases loaded. And then uh, at that point, he was uh, relieved uh, two thirds of the way through the third inning. And folk hero Fernando Valenzuela's career so so ended right there. So, um, you know, Valenzuela kind of comparable to I think what the Cardinals are hoping to find with. Uh, uh, Lester and, and Hap, uh, hopefully they get better results. I think Ben and I both expect that they will, but um, still uh, a, a moment we wanted to reflect on. So Ben, anything else on uh, Fernando mania before we talk about what we're looking for? So uh, he wound up with five total starts. Uh, he totaled uh, only 22 and two thirds uh, innings pitched. He had, 14 walks to 10 strikeouts and uh, a 5.56 ERA with the Cardinals. So uh, not a successful acquisition uh, in any way, shape, and for- or form other than it just kind of being fun from a nostalgia kick for kids like us uh, who lived through the 80s and 90s uh, when we had free time uh, and enjoyed the Cardinals then. And uh struggled to find the games on television uh, if they weren't playing the Cubs or the Braves. 
Yeah, and similar to today when we saw pictures of John Lester in a Cardinals uniform, at that time seeing Fernando Valenzuela in a Cardinals uniform was a, a jarring, <laughs> a jarring thing to see. It was not what you were, what you were expecting, but definitely memorable. So, uh, Ben, uh, and, and we're, again, we're on a fairly regular schedule here for the next month. The Cardinals are off every Monday uh, in the month of August, so we'll be back here weekly. Uh, ben, what are you going to be looking for? Uh, I'm going to be looking for fly ball outs. Uh, if Hap and Lester are recording a fair number of fly ball outs, uh, in particular when they're pitching at home, uh, I'm going to feel good about how the acquisitions are going to play out over the, re- the rest of this year. Uh, however, if they're giving up fly balls that are hitting the wall or landing over the wall, uh, I'm going <laughs> to feel uh, like maybe this gambit might not work, um, but that's what I'm going to be watching. Uh, how many fly ball outs uh, Lester and Hap are able to record? Yeah, I would encourage Tyler O'Neill, Harrison Bader, and Dylan Carlson to really stretch out before the game starts. You know, make sure their legs are feeling loose because they're uh, they're definitely going to be running some balls down in those games. As Mike uh, Schilt would say, engage the defense. They need to engage the defense. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm going to be watching Tommy Edmond and which side of the plate he is hitting on. Uh, and there was a story that came out just today. It was a Derek Gould story that noted, and I had missed this, but apparently in the, uh, I think it said in the Cincinnati series, yes, he had against a few uh, right-handed pitchers, he had batted right-handed. And that's something that Ben and I have talked about before on the show, the fact that uh, you know, while Edmund switch hits, his numbers batting left-handed are just really abysmal and just kind of, and I mean, if you've watched him play and I say, you know, Tommy Edmund grounds it into the shift, you know what I'm talking about. It's n- no kind of launch angle. And when you look at his splits, they're, they're really, really bad. And, and that's led us. And, and I think you specifically to consistently advocate for to platoon him at second base with, with Carpenter, um, which I think all the numbers suggest would make a lot more sense. So, uh, you know, I'm interested to see that and, and I'm, I'm encouraged. I'm glad to see that he's recognizing that. And uh, Edmonds numbers as a right-handed hitter are actually pretty good. Like if he, if he could put up the kind of numbers he puts up as a right-handed hitter uh, against all pitching, you know, he would be a viable kind of starting you know, uh, starting player. Now, of course, it, to be seen if, you know, he can, you know, put those numbers up as a right-handed hitter against right-handed pitching. I mean, some guys can and some guys can't, and I don't know exactly what led him to switch hitting, etc. So uh, we'll see. It's up in the air, but I'm, but that's why I'm going to be watching it because if he starts batting right-handed against right-handed hitters and he starts hitting right-handed hitters better, that's actually going to kind of raise my expectations for what he might be able to do uh, as an offensive player. Um, so Ben, I, th- we're just about at the end here. Do you have, uh, an off day recommendation for folks? Um, I do have an off day recommendation. Um, and it's a little bit more of a, of a general one. Um, but sports info solutions, which you started out as baseball info solutions. Um, they do defensive runs saved. Uh, Mark Simon, uh, is kind of their front man. They have a podcast and he does a lot of interviews with current players and he talks about like their gloves and defensive positioning and how they uh, came to be the good fielders that they are today. It's a really 
interesting podcast. It's really well done. Um, and I started listening to it uh, because Tommy Edmond was on and gave a very good interview. Um, so I would recommend that podcast generally to you uh, if you're a bit of a baseball nerd who likes fielding. Uh, and even specifically, uh, the Tommy Edmond episode is really good, and you should check that out. Um, as if we all need another podcast in our lives, I just wanted to say I have found the Sports Info Solutions uh, podcast uh, hosted by Simon uh, to be really good. Yeah, I, I need to listen to that one regularly. I did listen to the Tommy Edmond episode, and that was great. And I think that might be the only one I've I've listened to. I part of my problem is I have just too many podcasts yeah. sort of in my feed. So sometimes I, my attention shifts in one direction and then I stop listening to something for no specific reason other than it fell out of my, my, or it kind of got churned out of my, out of my feed. Um, so my off day recommendation, um, we're, uh, we've got a little bit more of the Olympics going on and Ben, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I really enjoy watching the Olympics. Um, I don't know where you're at on the Olympics. Uh, it's the Olympics is highly problematic. If I'm really going to be like honest and think about it, there's a lot of bad things about the Olympics, but just as a fan of watching sports, um, I just, I like how easy a watch the Olympics are. I think, uh, NBC does an amazing job every year with their coverage. You know, they, they, they put a sport on there. They give me a quick backstory on the person I'm about to see compete. And then I watch them compete and either they achieve their greatest dream in life or they're shattered. And then they're immediately on to the next one. And I never have to think about that person again. And I just think that's lovely. You know, if I watch the Olympics on Tuesday night and then I don't watch it on Wednesday night, I don't think, oh, my gosh, I got to catch up on what I missed Wednesday night. I don't care. I'll just watch it Thursday night. It's kind of the same experience. So so I, I don't watch the Olympics, you know, religiously or, you know, intensely, but I just find it a fun, relaxing watch. And to that end, on uh, Peacock, if you get Peacock, they're, they have a show this year. They're doing a daily kind of breakdown of highlights hosted by Kevin Hart and Snoop Dogg. Yes. Have you watched this, Yes, ben? the uh, dressage uh, tidbit uh, was one of the funnier things that I've seen in a while. Uh, Snoop Dogg just – he always seems cool, but it seems like uh, he perhaps earlier in life cultivated his image of being cool and now mm -hmm. he's just, uh, you know, I don't know if it's fatherhood or just getting older or what, but he's... Uh, all... or, or beating the murder rap. <laughs> but he's like, he's he's just very funny and kind of silly and entertaining, uh, just very endearing and like charming, I feel like. Uh, absolutely. I, I He's he's the real treasure there. But Kevin Hart is great too. Kevin Hart's just, you know just quick witted and they play off each other really well. And I think what I really like about it is they're kind of watching the Olympics with basically the same attitude as I am. Like they're kind of, they're having fun with it. You know, they're not overly serious about it. And so um, anyway, I think it's like a half hour show. I think they're posting a new one um, every day, but if you have Peacock, it's, it's a, it's a fun way to digest some, uh, some Olympics. I, I should also add um, the highlights that I have caught on YouTube. You can catch highlights of the highlight show on YouTube and they have swear words in them. Uh, oh, yeah. Dog, yeah. They are, the F word is used. So we are not recommending that you watch this with your children um, because they will, they will learn uh, new words, but that is also part of the fun is when Snoop Dogg deploys 
the F word. Um, Snoop, Snoop Dogg is one of the greatest cussers in the history of the English language. Yes. I mean, he's, and I mean, it's not surprising. He, you know, words are his tool that he uses. So he, he uses the foul words as, you know, well as he uses any words, which is extremely yes. well. So, but yeah, we had a similar conversation here. I watched it the first night and then uh, my wife was going to watch it with me. And she said, oh, should we have uh, Franklin, our uh, seven-year-old watch with us? And I had to say, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was another good one where he had alcohol in his coffee cup and Kevin Hart was just like, I, he is drinking liquor right now. Uh, it's 11 in the morning yeah. and Snoop Dogg's just like drinking it like tea. And it was, yeah. uh, I found that really uh, endearing I, and funny as well. I, I enjoy that Kevin Hart calls him unk yes. throughout the show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, yeah okay. it's, it's good. It's, it's good, uh, fun, and um, something that's fun about streaming too, right? Like this is something where... You know, I don't know where you put it if you don't have a streaming app because uh, it's such yeah. like a niche thing. Uh, totally. It, it's that rare. It's that rare kind of streaming delivering on what we all maybe hoped it would, that it would produce some things that are a little more niche or a little more weird or, you know, just kind of uh, unique in a way. And it's, this is totally that. So, well, I'm glad to hear you're watching, enjoying it. I have, I've talked to nobody about this. So I watch, I'm like, am I, I don't know if I'm the only person watching this or if anybody else is enjoying it, but I've found it enjoyable. So i um, glad to hear that you do as well. So Ben, anything else for the, the good of the order? Uh, no, not really. Uh, it sounds like, uh, Michael or, uh, I, I was going to say, uh, Michael Shannon, but it's Mike Shannon, uh, has caught his second wind and I'm very excited about this. Um, because, and, and it came a little bit earlier this year, but I get so fed up, especially now that the camera angle is so off kilter. I, I just, the Fox Sports Now, uh, Bali Sports Midwest broadcast uh, grates on me. And this is usually about the time of the year, August, uh, when I would turn to the radio more uh, as an alternative. Yeah. And uh, in September in particular, just because you were never quite sure how many more years of Mike Shannon you would get. And so uh, hearing him perhaps... Uh, hitting his stride again as a broadcaster. Uh, I am very excited for it, and I am hoping that it continues through throughout the end of this, his 50th and final year. Yeah, and let's be honest. this uh, A year like this, when you're watching like a 500 team and we're into August and September, I think the radio is a good way to enjoy these games. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't feel like I need to see every at-bat. So if I can just have a little Mike Shannon on in the background while I'm, you know, making dinner or something, that'll be, uh, that'll be A-OK with me. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it also gives you a break from Jim Edmonds just constantly talking oh. and you know, someone needs to communicate to the Bali Sports Midwest gang that letting the game breathe is a good thing. Uh, it's it's why Vin Scully is oftentimes and and uh, yeah. Jack Buck are oftentimes said to be amongst the best ever because they understand that you don't have to talk all the time. Someone should also give that advice to Ricky Horton. Um, I've uh, actually had to diversify my radio listening a lot more this year because Horton suffocates the game with all of his incessant blabbering. And he's so 
pleased with himself, like he's entertaining in any way and he's not. And it's frankly, I would like to say to our listeners, it is a disgrace that they are replacing Shannon with him. Uh, an absolute disgrace that the St. Louis Cardinals, one of the greatest organizations in all of professional sports, has no one good to replace Mike Shannon with. They have Ricky Horton, who was not a good pitcher, never even signed as a free agent as a player, and just suffocates the game with his incessant blabbering. He's terrible. Yeah, I'm I'm not happy about it uh, either. Um, I'm hopeful we'll hear a lot of John Rooney. But uh, I guess we'll I guess we'll see. So um, anyway, we'll have to. Uh, I think we should table the uh, broadcaster uh, criticisms because we could certainly do another nine hours if we really got into. <laughs> got into yes, and we've stretched this <laughs> podcast uh, with my blabbering on long enough. So no, no, I just it's it's a it's an easy easy topic to get pulled into. But uh, at any rate, uh, we'll be back in exactly another week. So thank you guys. Uh, it's been another Cardinals Off Day podcast. <laughs>